Thank you, Marty. Welcome, fellow students. If you'd be so kind, please turn to the book of Habakkuk. Um, we're going to roll pretty quickly today. Um, lots and lots of good stuff. So we have two weeks in Habakkuk, and then we'll get to Haggai for a week, and then a couple in Malachi, and then we'll start Revelation, Lord willing, in June. This is one of the classic books uh, in Scripture that asks the big why question. Why does a good God permit evil to exist. And Habakkuk asks the why question four times and he gets very, very pointed with God. This is a rather unique book in prophetic literature. Most of the time when you read scripture, a prophet of God takes the word of God and declares it to people. This book is unique in the fact that God and the prophet are having a dialogue about people. So this entire book is a dialogue between God and the prophet, which is interesting if you want to know how not to have a conversation with God. This would be a really good book to read. Three chapters on how not to have a conversation with God. Most prophets proclaim God's judgment. Habakkuk is unique in the sense that he petitions God for judgment, only not on him. Right? We, we've done that. Have you ever done that before? Yeah. God, you need to take action on them. I'm doing fine. We're all good to go. So, yeah, mer have mercy on me and judgment on them. I mean, we're good at that. So the book really is divided into two parts. The first two chapters, which we're going to try and cover today, are a dialogue between God and Habakkuk about God's announcement that he's going to raise up uh, wicked Babylon to judge evil Judah. And chapter 3, between chapter 2 and chapter 3, Habakkuk goes through this massive transformation. Because chapter 3, Habakkuk is a different person than he was in chapter 1 and 2. When you see how Habakkuk talks with God in chapter 3, he is a dramatically different person than he was in the first two chapters. That'll be interesting. We'll spend a lot more time on that next week. So this book, we see Habakkuk from worrying. He goes from worry to watching and waiting, to worshiping, from fear to faith. Now, the name Habakkuk means to embrace or to wrestle. Uh, it's a very appropriate title for this book because in the first two chapters, Habakkuk is wrestling with God. And when, when the, the, the Hebrew for wrestle is to grip. And it doesn't mean I'm going to embrace you like you would a baby. It means I'm going to embrace you and I'm going to smack down. That's, the, that's what the wrestle means. I mean, Habakkuk and God are wrestling like God and Jacob were. And Habakkuk thinks he can smack God down like worldwide wrestling, you know, the big, big screen. The second part of this, though, is in the third chapter, you see him clinging to God. So both wrestling and embracing really fit the name of the prophet and the book as a whole. Now, when you look at the very last phrase of the book, at the end of chapter three, it says, for the choir director on my stringed instruments. So... There's been much speculation, probably a fair certainty that Habakkuk probably was a musician. He's probably a singer-musician in Levitical uh, temple worship. So an interesting prophet and also a, a poet. Uh, when you read this book, it almost sounds like the Psalms. I mean, he writes like a poet as well as a prophet. The historical setting of this book, the turmoil on the international scene is just massive. The, the Assyrian Empire is falling apart, literally disintegrating, and there's a new regional power on stage called the Babylonian Empire. In 612 BC, General Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had moved upriver about 100 miles and conquered Nineveh. 
the, the, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Of course, the nobility from Nineveh fled north to Haran and Carchemish, and General Nebuchadnezzar just chases the Assyrian nobility upriver all the way to Carchemish, which is going to be the scene of a very, very famous battle. Now, the Assyrian nobility is up in Carchemish, and they're in trouble. They're falling apart, and Babylon is really taking over their empire. Pharaoh Necho is the Egyptian pharaoh. He's way down south, and he allies with Assyria against Babylon. So he travels through Judah, and he's going to meet up in Carchemish to support the Assyrians against the Babylonians. Now, good King Josiah of Judah is opposing that move by Pharaoh. And you know the story. He gets killed by Pharaoh Necho in 609. And Josiah was one of the best kings that Judah ever had. Just kind of giving you some geopolitics here at that point in time. When Josiah dies, his son Jehoahaz inherits the throne. And he reigns for 90 days. Now you think, I'm going to be king for a day. Well, he was king for 90 days. You know, wowie kazowie. Three months after Pharaoh Necho comes through the land, he reinvades Judah and appoints Jehoiakim to be king in place of Jehoahaz. Now, believe it or not, King Josiah is the daddy to both these boys. Two of them with J names. Those of you who like J names, you, you like this. Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim. And there's another one called Jehoiachin. That's a third son. Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin. I, you, know, you, know, you know the drill. All right. So, what we have is Assyria is falling apart. Babylon is the new empire on the scene. Egypt is allied with Assyria against Babylon. Judah is allied not with any of them. As Judah opposes Egypt, joining up with Assyria. King Josiah gets killed. That's like the president getting assassinated. The problem is there's no Congress. You've got nobility, etc. But there's really not a succession plan except for the kids. So if you're a citizen of this nation, you're going, uh, Josiah was a really good king. I wonder if any of his children have any brains and wisdom because they're going to inherit the throne. They're going to lead us for better or for worse. Unfortunately, Jehoiakim was a pretty wicked king. So four years later, there's the, one of the major battles of antiquity, the Battle of Carchemish in 605 BC. Babylon destroys Assyria. Now we have a new kid on the block. A new regional power has emerged, Babylon on the scene. Habakkuk's living in that time frame. Furthermore, he's living in a time frame of national upheaval. The nation of Judah is a serious mess. Josiah was a good king. He dies. His son Jehoiakim takes over, and he's wicked and corrupt and committed to violence and lawlessness, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. Habakkuk probably wrote this book about 605 B.C., if you're taking notes in your Bible, after the Battle of Carchemish and before Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah. Now, Habakkuk is a contemporary of Jeremiah. They worked at the same time frame prior to the invasion by Babylon at that point in time, and Jeremiah had been saying the same message to Judah for four decades. Repent, or you're going to lose your freedom. Repent, or you're going to be judged for four decades. Now, if you think you heard the same message for 40 years, you would do something about it? How many have heard the same message for 40 years? Has it mattered? <laughs> yeah, you know, we, many, many times we hear the same thing, and after we hear it a number of times, you know what happens? 
we take our hearing aid out, we set it on the nightstand, and we no longer pay attention, right? I've heard that before. I don't need to do anything about it. So God just didn't send Jeremiah. He sent Joel, Zephaniah, Amos, and they all told him, it's time to repent or judgment's going to fall. By Habakkuk's time, there is no repentance possible. God is done with Judah. Invasion is coming. We're only talking about when and how, because God always keeps his word. So here's the key idea. All of history is under God's control, including me. I say that because most of us are very willing to have all of history under God's control except me. Right? We're saying, of course, God's in charge of everything in history, nations, and individuals, and families, and people groups, but I alone have, I can do what I want to do. No, no, no. If God's in charge of all of history and it's under his control, it means that you're under his control too. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's go to chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you, God, violence, yet you do not save. Ever had that conversation with God? This is the opening line of a conversation. It's not, oh, Jesus, I just, ever, you ever pray like that? I just want to blah, 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 blah. He goes, God, I've been talking to you and you're not listening. Turn your hearing aid on. Where you been? A vacation? It's time to get back to work. It says oracle. The word oracle means a heavy, weighty burden. He's got this burden he's been lifting up. And he says, God, how long will you not hear? You know what the implication is? He's probably been praying for a long time. See, many of us, when we say, God, how long will you not hear? God says, well, you just started praying three minutes ago. It's the first time I've heard from you in six months. I mean, come on, right? You know, we need to you know, a little bit more, more words here. Habakkuk's been praying to God for a long time. But... God has not answered him, so Habakkuk concludes that God's indifferent, asleep, or insensitive. You know, it's very easy to confuse speaking and listening. How many of you have ever been on a phone call? Not a video feed, a phone call. And you're talking, 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 and they don't say anything. Yeah. <laughs> Or they put the phone down the counter and walked away and they're doing stuff. How many of you wonder, are they listening if they never respond back, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you still there? Are you still there? I have some relatives. You could literally put the phone down, walk away for a couple hours. They would not know you left. Because they're not interested in you listening. They're interested in them talking. Well, Habakkuk hadn't heard from God, so he concluded that maybe God wasn't listening, right? And he hadn't seen God do anything, so maybe he thought God wasn't helping. So he's saying, God, why aren't you hearing? And God, why aren't you helping? Here's an interesting principle. Never confuse God's silence with God's deafness. God can hear. He does hear. He does hear. He may be silent. Verse 3. Why? Here's the first why. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Sin, destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. 
for the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. You read this and you go, he must be reading our headlines. Right? He must be reading headlines in the United States. There is a pervasive culture of corruption in Judah. And it really disturbs him. And he, he starts listing some of the problems he sees in society. When you list these problems, you're going to say, wow, that's us. Because Judah's wickedness is right in your face. I mean, it's right in your face. Number one, he says, destruction and violence are before me. Do we live in a fairly destructive culture? Oh, yeah. Property gets destroyed, right? Windows get busted out. People burn stuff down. They tag this and that. Violence occurs. You know, you don't have to go to a bad part of town to see this. It's in your neighborhood. It's in your neighborhood right now. That's part of the turf. He says, God, why do you make me see wickedness? You know what he's saying? Evil in my culture is so prevalent, you can't get away from it. I can't even hide from it. It's all over the place. I'm forced to watch it because I, I can't get away from it. He says strife and contention exists. You know what contention is? People are pounding on each other verbally. People are pounding on each other physically. People are pounding on each other in the courts. There's lawsuits going on. People are pounding on each other in the family. There's lots of contention. Do we live in a culture where there's lots of contention? I mean, I see ads on everywhere saying, you need someone to do contention for you? Hire me, your attorney. I'll take him to court and sue him and blah, 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 blah. And it's everywhere. So we're a very contentious culture. In this culture, everyone has a grievance about something. Right? Somebody done somebody wrong. And it's me. And I'm going to hire somebody to fix it. He also says, God, have you noticed that the law is ignored. How many of you would look at our culture today and say, yeah, I would say there's a pretty good chunk of our culture where the law is ignored. Would you agree with that? God's law is not only ignored, it's outlawed. You can't even post the Ten Commandments in a public school wall because it's against the law. You know why it's against the law? The students might read them. They might actually follow them. And that would be imposing your religious belief system on them and that's out against the law. Okay. The word here for ignored is paralyzed. He says the law is paralyzed. The law is numb. It's become numb. Here's the truth. If you ignore the law long enough, the law becomes ineffective in restraining evil. Now, you know where I sin against that all the time? Speed limits. True confession. Speed limits are suggestions to me. I'm not proud of this. It's reality. But that's true. This is a way that Brad is a lawbreaker. I treat speed limits as suggestions that I may or may not choose to follow at that point. Right? Yeah, I'm always on time. Yeah. Until I get a ticket and then I'm late. But then I have an excuse, right? I'm not, I'm not saying you should do what I do. You should not. You should pay attention to the law. But we tend to break the law in the culture and then we tend to justify it. And he says, because of this, God, justice comes out perverted. What's perverted mean? Twisted. It literally means to bend it out of shape, to twist it out of shape. Corruption in the judicial system twists justice into injustice. The innocent are indicted and the guilty go free. 
Does it sound like today? Very contemporary. When you look at Habakkuk's day, you would say, yeah, I, I can relate to this. This is us. You read about some judicial rulings and you can't believe the decisions that were made in the courtroom. You just say, really? How did you come to that conclusion? Incredible stuff. So Habakkuk is complaining to God in the first three or four verses here. And God is now going to respond to Habakkuk in verse 5. And he's really going to blow his doors off. Verse 5. God talking. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I am doing something in your days. You would not believe it even if you were told. God tells Habakkuk, open your eyes. You've been myopic and nearsighted. All you can see is your little corner of the world, Habakkuk. In fact, I am going to take action. I'm going to take action in your lifetime. And it's going to be dramatic, drastic action. It will be divine action, so unexpected, it's literally going to shock you. It's going to be like grabbing hold of a 220-volt wire when you got your feet in a puddle. It's going to stun you. You could better put your seatbelt on, Habakkuk. Back in the uh, 70s, uh, Kenny Stabler, remember Kenny Stabler? Yeah. Oakland Raiders, called the Snake. He had a, a, a speedboat, a really fast speedboat. He kept down in the Florida swamp, Florida bayous. And on the passenger side of the dashboard, he had a plaque. When you got into the boat on the passenger side, and he was driving, and the plaque said, get in, sit down, shut up, hang on. <laughs> That's what God, in so many words, is telling the back. He says, I'm going to do some stuff in your day that is going to blow your doors off. Hang on. Here's the principle. Some of you are going to struggle with this. I hope you do. God always answers my prayers. Underline always. God always answers my prayers. It's on the screen, too. But his solutions to my problems are often surprising and sometimes shocking. God always answers my prayers, but His solutions to my problems are often surprising and sometimes shocking. So in verse 6, God says, Habakkuk, here's my solution to the problem of Judah's wickedness. You tell me I'm not doing anything about Judah's wickedness? I have a solution. And my divine solution in verse 6, Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, or Babylonians, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the land to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. This is God's plan to deal with his own people's disobedience. He's going to call out the Chaldeans to get the job done. And he says, they're qualified because I called them. And by the way, Houston, we now have a problem. If you're Habakkuk and you heard God say, I'm calling out the Chaldeans to come and discipline you for wickedness, you know you have a problem. How many of you have ever watched um, the news on television? I know, kind of archaic. But anyway, and, and you see all the ads for pharmaceutical products, right? For our age group, you know, they're talking about if you take this, if you take that, etc. Yeah, pardon? Yeah, may cause sudden death, you know. No, literally. And, 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 you, and you look at the product and you go, well, pretty good deal. And then they start reading, now that they're required to, the side effects list. And you read the side effects list, and by the time you get done reading the side effects list, you go, maybe the problem is not so bad. 
maybe, maybe I should just live with the problem. The cure could kill me, right? I mean, we were watching something here a while back, something called restless leg syndrome, where your leg shakes at night. Yeah. And then they start listing the side effects. Gambling addiction, sexual addiction, cardiac arrest, and you're going, man, let the leg shake, dude. It's all right. It's, you know, not a problem. We don't need the solution. The cure is worse than disease. See, here's what I think happened in verse 6 when God said, my solution to your problem is to bring the Chaldeans in. I can hear Habakkuk going, whoops, I should have just shut up. Right? I should. Why am I complaining about all this stuff? Because God's got a solution that is not what I had in mind. Now you look at verse 7 through about 11, God starts describing these people. These are the people that God is calling out to accomplish his purposes for Judah. And you read these people and you go, you would not want these folks as your neighbors. You, unless they're neighbors on the other side of the world, right? Verse 7, he's describing the Babylonians. He says they are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. In other words, they are a law unto themselves. They make their own rules. No one tells them what to do. Verse 8. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. They come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to deliver. So Babylon's got a superior military machine, and God is describing them using animal predators as illustrations. Leopards are probably the best feline uh, predators in the world. Their kill, kill ratio, which means how many times they attempt to kill and how many times they're successful, is the best in the cat kingdom. One out of two. One out of two times. Now, just example, a cheetah. A cheetah's got a kill ratio only one out of 12. So for every 12 attempts, they, they succeed in killing prey once. The leopard does it one out of two times. Very, very successful. Wolves, he says, are like wolves. Wolves in the evening are ravenous because they haven't eaten all day, right? Very much so. Canine predators like dogs uh, and wolves are known for their tenacity. You've seen pictures of wolves when they get on the scent. We say they doggedly pursue their prey, right? It means they're tenacious. They don't give up. They keep coming. They keep coming. They keep coming. That's what God says. That's what these Babylonians are like. They keep coming. They keep coming. They won't give up, right? They're on you, and they're going to come after you. Horses were the fastest mode of transportation for thousands of years. What he's saying here is that, like Hitler, the, the Babylonians had perfected the style of Blitzkrieg. Blitzkrieg is a style of warfare literally translated as lightning war. Remember in World War II, the French had the Maginot Line on the east, and they really thought that the, that, the, that the Germans had to come through the Maginot Line. Well, the Germans were not dumb. They said, well, if you've got a big fortress here and a big line of defense fortifications, we'll just go around it. Right? And they did. And it took them six weeks to run over France. Pretty fast warfare. Lightning war. That was the Chaldeans. They were very, very, very quick. God says they're like an eagle swooping. A predator bird like a... Pardon? Chaldeans and Babylonians, same people. Okay. I'm using those terms there. So when I say Babylonians and Chaldeans, I'm talking about the same people. How can they have two um, I don't know. I guess we're Californians and Bakerfield, Bakersfieldians in um, uh, United States. So, it, it, but it's the, same, it's the same people group. Good question. An eagle swooping is a picture of a predator bird diving on their prey. 
you get a peregrine falcon in a stoop, that means they're going after prey and they're diving, they tuck their wings and they can hit about 185 miles an hour. And they hit the bird and literally sometimes disintegrate him. So very, very, very quickly. God is using these terms to describe the enemies that are going to be invading Judah. Pretty serious definition. Verse 9. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces move forward. They collect captives like sand. God is saying, these people that are going to invade you, they don't just tolerate violence. They love it. You've heard the old parable, never wrestle with a pig. You both get dirty, but the pig likes it. Right? These people loved a good brawl. They loved to kill. They enjoyed, they had bloodlust just like a wolf. It says they came, their faces moved forward. It means they're very, very organized. They collect captives like sand. They're so effective in overwhelming their enemies, they can collect captives as about as easy as you fill up a bucket of sand at the beach. No problem, right? Doesn't take much to fill a bucket of sand. He says they'll overrun you that easy. Verse 10, they mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. <clears throat> Look at the last phrase at verse 10. They laugh at what? Mine says every fortress. So their success ratio is what? A hundred percent. Which means they've never failed in capturing what they set out to capture. What do you think Judah's chances of deliverance are? Zero. It's going to happen. Verse 11. Now God announces the divine perspective on Babylon. They will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. Their rule is only temporary. They're going to pass away like the wind, just like when you exhale breath on a cold winter day, and God's going to hold them accountable for their idolatry because what do they worship? Their military machine. Their strength is their God. Now, Habakkuk really has a problem with this. He struggles with God telling him, I'm going to judge wicked Judah by using evil Babylon. Right? He really struggles with this. So in verse 12 he says, God, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. Here's what he's saying. God, you made a promise to King David. You, eternal God, who cannot change, told David that he would have an everlasting kingdom, right? So you can't wipe out Judah. You can't wipe out Judah, because otherwise you're breaking your word to King David. Habakkuk can never, I mean, Israel can never be completely destroyed, amen? It doesn't say they can't be disciplined. And they were severely disciplined. They were carried out of the land for 70 years. Habakkuk says, God, you've appointed them to judge, and you, O rock, have established them to judge. So God is in control of Israel's destiny and Israel's discipline, and Habakkuk knew that Judah deserved God's discipline, right? You know what bothered Habakkuk? Who was dispensing the discipline? He didn't say that. You know what he saw? God, a holy God, is using an evil people to accomplish his purpose. 
He can't put that together. How can God, who is holy, use wickedness to accomplish his purposes? Verse 13. He says, God, your eyes are too, evil, too pure to approve evil. God, you can't look on wickedness with favor. Here's the second why. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? So he says, God, you can't use unrighteous means to accomplish your end because Chaldea is evil and you're a holy God. That's not true, by the way. God routinely used evil nations to discipline his own people, didn't he? Remember the book of Judges? It says that Israel in Judges 2, 13 to 14, Israel forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth, verse 14. No, no, but he certainly has historically with his people. God disciplines us. You know how God disciplines us? However he chooses. How do you discipline your children? However you deem it to be most in their long-term best interest. And that can change, right? You discipline them differently when they're 16 and when they're 6 than when they're 6 months, right? I mean, there's a different mindset. So the Lord knows what Israel needs. Here's the part we struggle with. Sometimes our children need suffering to correct them, right? That's what discipline is. It's correction and training. If God doesn't discipline his own people, you know what he's saying? I'm okay with your wickedness. Is God ever okay with wickedness? No, he's not. But he's a long-suffering God. He's a very patient God. He has given Israel centuries to repent. Habakkuk has a correct view of God, that God is holy, but he fails to understand that God can use whatever means God chooses to accomplish his purposes. In Judges 2.14, it says, The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. I will tell you what this is like. Habakkuk listening to God tell him that he's going to bring Chaldea, Babylon, in to invade Israel. That's like God telling the United States, I am empowering supernaturally ISIS the Islamic State that beheads people and burns them alive, to successfully invade the USA, and they're going to murder, torture, and carry away female Christians to the Middle East and sell them into the sex slave, sex trade. And you look at that and you go, that's unthinkable. That's impossible. How could a holy God empower somebody as wicked as ISIS to discipline good America? That's exactly what he's feeling. He's going, what are you talking about? This doesn't make any sense at all. He says to God, verse 12, why are you silent when, here's, here's an interesting question, underline this one. Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? What's Habakkuk saying there in verse 13? What's he saying? He's saying Judah is more righteous than Babylon. You know what that's called? 
self-righteousness, right? God, you can't use them because we're more righteous than they are. See, anytime we get self-righteousness, it says, my sin is less bad than your sin. Your sin is worse than my sin. You know what God says about self-righteousness? It's filthy rags. Here's the inconvenient truth. The inconvenient truth is that Israel was as wicked as Babylon. And by the way, <clears throat> I will stick both feet in my mouth on this one. There is some truth that America is as evil as ISIS. We don't like to think about that because we always view ourselves with the eye of self-righteousness. We've slaughtered far more babies than ISIS has ever killed. 55 million. And that's okay in our culture. But it's not okay that they burn people alive. The truth of them is both of them are noxious in the sight of a holy God. 2 Kings 21 verse 9, God says, Israel has sinned more than the nations whom the Lord has destroyed from before the Israelites. Manasseh has sinned more than the Amorites before him and encouraged Judah to sin by worshiping his disgusting idols. I am going to bring disaster on Jerusalem and Judah. In verse 14, <clears throat> Habakkuk asks God why for the fourth time. And he basically says, these people capture people like you fish for fish. And God, if you empower them to capture us, they're going to worship their net, their military machine, and you are going to be guilty of idolatry, of encouraging idolatry. Now go to chapter 2, because Habakkuk is done talking. He's finally said his piece. And what does he say in chapter 2, verse 1? He says, it's time for me to listen. That's a very, very, very good thing to do when you're having a conversation with God. How many of us, when we talk to God, we say, I got to talk to God? Literally. And we go, give me, give me, give me, please, 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 thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen. And what do we do? We get up and walk away. How would you feel if your spouse or your child or your cousin or your friend dumped a verbal load on you and said, I've said everything I need to say, thank you very much, goodbye, and walked away. You would say, you're not interested in me, my opinion, right? You're not interested that I would have something to say to what you just said to me? See, there's a, when we speak to God, we need to create space to listen when he responds. Do you think he has a response? He wants to respond to us. Actually, he's the one who initiated in the first place. So chapter 2, 1, Habakkuk says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me. And what's the last phrase of that? And how I'm going to reply when I am reproved. You think he knows he's in trouble? Yeah. I think he knows God's got something to say to him at that point in time. Now, the rest of chapter 2 is God speaking. And God says in chapter 2, verse 2, Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. Here's the principle. History follows God's perfect plan. 
my job is not to change God's plan, but to communicate God's plan to the world. We spend more time trying to persuade God to change his plan so it meets our plan. We probably would be better off spending that time communicating God's plan. So God's, Habakkuk is being told by God, write down my plan for Judah and for Babylon. My plan will stand Habakkuk, not yours, so write my words down. Tablets, he's talking about clay tablets. You took a clay tablet once you wrote the message on it, and then you put it in a kiln, and you fired it to heat it, to harden it. So it was recorded permanently for posterity. God's word is still here thousands of years later. And he says, by the way, write it legibly. Write it legibly so that anyone can read it and can communicate my plan to the world. That's the gospel, right? We got that? Verse 3. For the vision, this is God's plan, for God's plan is yet for the appointed time. God's plan for Babylon, God's plan for Judah. God's plan for America, God's plan for you and me. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come, it will not delay. Here's the principle. God's plan will be fulfilled in God's time, and you do not hold his stopwatch. Many of us believe that God has entrusted us with his stopwatch, right? God, your plan, but I get to tell you when to do it. Click. How many of you have, how many of you ever prayed where you're holding a stopwatch and you're saying, God, you got um, 32.5 seconds to get on with it. I got the stopwatch. Stopwatch says what you're supposed to do when you're supposed to do it, right? You're looking at me with that blank look like, I don't know what you're talking about, Brad. I have never done that. Okay, I got one honest guy. Most of our frustration with God's plans have to do with God's timing. Most of our frustration with God's timing is he doesn't move fast enough according to our timeline. Because we would rather do anything than wait. We would rather do anything than wait. I've seen people lose their cookies when they have to wait an extra minute to get their coffee in the morning at Starbucks. I mean, they're just shaking, you know. I need my caffeine, I need my caffeine, right? God says, my deadline for judgment is not passed. As a matter of fact, it's approaching very quickly. My judgment is guaranteed. I know you think I'm delayed, but my promises are perfect and I'm going to act when I'm ready to act. And nothing's going to thwart it. Underline verse 4. It's the key to the book. I wish we had more time. I've got six minutes. It says, Behold us for the proud one. His soul is not right within him, but the just, the righteous, will live by his faith. This is God talking, and he basically says the human race can be divided into two groups, the proud, whose heart is not right with God, and the righteous, who are right with God, and they live by faith. The proud see themselves and their good works as being enough to save them from God's judgment. Only those lesser people need grace. The proud believe that God graves on a curve, and they are not as bad as other people. By the way, that's Habakkuk's belief at this point in time, too. He believes the nation of Judah is less wicked than the nation of Babylon. God doesn't agree with that. God says, you guys are as wicked as Babylon, and my holiness has to judge you both at that point. The righteous will obtain eternal life, relationship with God, not based on good works, but on the basis of faith, which we're going to talk more about next week. 
Now, I jump down to verse 8. I want to articulate one of the fundamental principles of God's moral universe. Here it is. You already know it. What goes around, what you plant, as you give, you shall. All of us know that. Verse 8. Because you have looted many nations, all the remainder of the peoples will loot you. Verse 10. He's talking to Babylon. Because you have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples, so you are sinning against yourself. All sin is suicide. You can write that down. All sin is ultimately suicide. It's verse 10, 8 through 10. It's Habakkuk 2. The thief always steals the most from themselves. The liar always first deceives themselves. The adulterer first sins against their own body, right? Sin doesn't make any sense because it burns your own house down. Judah had shed innocent blood just like Babylon had shed innocent blood. Jump down to verse 13. It says, Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that people toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? Here's the principle. God causes plans and people who oppose him to fail. God says, why spend your energy doing what is wrong when you know I'm going to burn it all up anyway? Right? All evil someday will be no more, right? It's going to get burned up. It's going to be destroyed. And God is basically saying to Judah, stop doing evil because I'm going to cause it not to succeed. Not to succeed. How many empires have risen and fallen and that we know of? Hundreds. And we see their rubble today, right? How many dictators in history have seized power and built their kingdoms through violence and oppression? Here's an interesting question. How many of those dictators have died? How many of their kingdoms have died with them? All of them, right? God says building with bloodshed is futile because I'm going to burn up all evil deeds with the fire of my judgment. He's telling Judah and Babylon, stop doing wrong because I'm opposed to it. Verse 14, you should underline, it basically gives you the end state and why we should be walking by faith because we know the end of the story. Sin doesn't make any sense because the day is coming when all evil will be destroyed. Verse 14 is a fabulous verse. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The end of the story is already written. Stop sweating over what nation is going to rule the world. None of them will. None of them will. The glory of the Lord will fill the entire world. You know what the glory of the Lord will fill the entire world implies? There's no room for the glory of man. It will only be the glory of the Lord. There will be sin no more at that point in time. Okay. We're out of time. Let me give you some high-level uh, just summaries, and then I'll ask Darren to come up and we'll do uh, Scripture. By the way, next week uh, we're going to finish Habakkuk 3. For those of you taking notes, I want you to read Psalm 73. Psalm 73 along with Habakkuk 3. So Habakkuk 3, Psalm 73. And for those of you that want to hear God ask about 85 questions to Job, I want you to read Job 37 through 41. 
And God will, if you're not humbled with that, you need to get a new battery for your hearing aid. Here's the summary. All history is under God's control, including me. It means most of the headlines in this world are noise. It's just noise. You know what the most boring thing in life to do is? Read a newspaper that's a month old. You read the headlines, the stuff that gave us heart palpitations a month ago is like, nah, it's old news. It's old news, right? God always answers my prayers. But his solutions to my problems are often surprising and sometimes shocking. History follows God's perfect plan. My job is not to change God's plan, but to communicate God's plan to the world. God's plan will be fulfilled in God's time, and I do not hold a stopwatch. And the last one, since we already know the end of the story, we can live by faith today. Amen? All right. Next week, Habakkuk 3. I love you guys. Thanks for listening. And now that you know, go and do.